Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Welcome to the Gun Show. Our awkward title is amazing as always. I am joined today by Garrett. Hello. And Tarek, as usual. Hello, boys and girls. And today we're discussing dry fire, a uh, much requested topic. Uh, and I think quite important at the moment when no one gets to actually go to the shooting range and practice drills and things live. Um, now's the perfect time to get into dry fire, get you some, uh, some actual manipulation on your firearms while you're sitting at home doing nothing. Today, we're, we're very glad that we've got Gaz as part of the team because when it comes to dry fire subject matter experts, I don't know too many guys around who, who are quite as knowledgeable and, and quite as involved and, and committed to dry fire as Garrett is. So uh, he's going to be leading most of the discussion today because he's the, he's the expert. Uh, and he's going to just talk us through uh, his philosophy behind dry fire, why you should do it, some basic technique stuff, some safety stuff, most importantly, uh, and then just uh, some some basic drills as well. So it's going to be quite a jam-packed uh, episode, we hope, and we hope you're going to get lots out of it. Yeah, thanks, T. So to start with the dry fire stuff, I want to bring up safety as a priority. Um, even though we're in an isolated environment, we're still handling firearms, so we need to make sure that we're being responsible about it and um, that we, we're following the normal firearm safety precautions and rules. And... To think about it a bit further, you want to separate any ammunition you might have in your dry fire workspace. Um, ideally, have it stored in the safe uh, with the keys out or removed with it locked um, or in another room so that you can't mix that into your, your dry fire workspace. Obviously, that's not going to be ideal. And then obviously, the one thing that gets overlooked regularly and that we see quite a lot is targets placed on um, surfaces that if something were to happen and you did have a live round fire, the surface that the target's placed on is actually penetrable, which is extremely unsafe. Uh, so keep that in mind. Make sure that you being aware of what you're doing with a gun, where you're placing your targets. And then one of the things that we see that does come up fairly regularly is complacency because we drive firing in an environment where there's um, quote unquote no ammunition. We get complacent with a few things which would include muzzle direction. And secondly, what we're doing, we, you, you sort of, because of that complacency, you tend to start putting your finger on the trigger when you're not supposed to. So you need to keep all of those things in mind and make sure that you're doing everything safely and carefully. Gaz briefly mentioned the, uh, the, the firearm rules and most of you would have seen those uh, in, in some form of, uh, of training, hopefully, or uh, through references to, to Jeff Cooper, highly important that those always get followed. Even if you think that the firearm is unloaded, you need to treat the firearm as if it were loaded. Um, you, you cannot, accidents happen. And unfortunately, when you believe that the firearm is dry as it should be for dry fire, your likelihood of ignoring those rules is substantially higher. Uh, and as a result, your, your margin for error gets smaller and smaller, especially if you ignore things like having a live round anywhere within your workspace. Now, I will typically keep an EDC firearm near me when I am dry firing that is loaded and is live, uh, but I will never have a firearm that is capable of taking the same magazines as the gun that I'm dry firing as my backup firearm when I'm doing this. Uh, mixing up magazines happens. Um, I highly recommend that you take a secondary firearm off of you. Don't dry fire your competition rig 
with your carry firearm still in your normal carry position. Accidents happen. You go for the wrong gun and you squeeze off around by accident. You go for the wrong magazine and you squeeze off around by accident. Crime is a reality and having a firearm that you can use to defend yourself is always important. But having that in in a position and a place where you can't mix it up accidentally and where you can't confuse magazines. Uh, Let's quick, quickly discuss those four rules. Um, you all should know them if you've done, if you're in South Africa and you've done your competency, um, or if you've ever dealt with guns. Someone's hopefully taught taught them through to you. A lot of people kind of just they 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 mouth them off by rote. They don't think about what they are. So let's have a quick chat about them. The one, the, the classic first one is always that we always treat every gun as if it's loaded. That's that can be a problematic one with dry fire because we're kind of not treating it like it's loaded because we're we're pulling the trigger. So what I prefer to think of is always take precaution as if the gun was loaded. So don't do stupid things with the gun because, oh, it's unloaded. Don't let it sweep your wife, your kids, your family, your husband, whatever. Um, take precaution as if what you were doing was, was with a loaded gun. We always want to keep the gun pointed in a safe direction. And I always like to say we, always point, we make sure that we don't point the gun at anything we're not prepared to kill, destroy, or buy. So if we are... Um, if, if we are putting targets up, don't put your dry fire targets up on a door or on a window or have them on either side of a window where you're going to sweep a gun through a window pointing at something else. Make sure that the whole time the gun, if a shot were to fire accidentally, it would be embarrassing, but it would not be dangerous or, or, or negligent. We always keep our finger away uh, in register, so not just off the trigger, but in a register position until we're ready to fire. And with dry fire, that's important. As Gaz mentioned earlier, people start doing silly things like getting their fingers on the trigger when the gun's still in the holster, trying to outdo that part-time. Uh, we want to make sure that we're dealing with this as if it was a live gun. And then lastly, we need to be aware of our target, its foreground, background, and surrounds. So in the dry fire situation, what am I dry firing at? If the gun goes off, is it pointing at something, you know, is, is, is the target something that when the bullet hits the wall in the bookcase, well, I'm going to destroy a couple of books, but the bullet's going to stop safely, or is it up against the window where if the ground goes off, it's going to whistle into my neighbor's yard? These are things we need to take really seriously um, every time that we drive by. We need to make sure that we apply these rules whenever we deal with firearms, including, and a lot of people forget this, with drive by. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of like Cornet with this as well, in that I don't, <laughs> I, I understand the logic about locking everything up in the safe. I was still in South Africa. Um, so my self-defense, I, I will have a loaded self-defense gun handy. It'll be in such a position that it requires two steps to bring it into action. So I'm not going to dry fire and have it lying on the table next to me. It'll, it'll be in a Kydex holster a couple of steps away so that if I were to need it, I'd have access to it, but where there's no, where I'm not going to actually just pick it up and, and dry fire with it. I think that's quite important. Even if I'm dry firing a long gun and, and, and my self-defense gun is, is a handgun, um, and then a little personal thing I do whenever I finish uh, dry firing, if I do load that gun, so if I've been dry firing my self-defense gun, I physically say out loud as I load it, I say load it. It sounds silly, but we've all heard the stories about the guys who've shot the TV because they decided to get one more click in or anything like that. So especially with self-defense guns where we can load them again afterwards, I like to, to stop, look at what I'm doing. And it's, it's almost like a little mental switch where I say loading to remind myself now that, that we're back to having a loaded firearm. I think just to pick up on the uh, 
before we let Gaz get into some some more detailed stuff on drills, is uh, saying that the firearm is loaded so that you actually register in your mind is really important. Um, the other bit of this is you're not in the shooting range when you're actually carrying your uh, your EDC firearm, and uh, you you want to start doing dry fire with that to improve your EDC skill. Uh, you need to be sure to thoroughly inspect your firearm. Um, you can't just pull the mag out, rack the slide, point it, and pull the trigger and hope for the best, like a lot of people do on shooting ranges, because the gun goes off from the shooting range and pointed in a safe direction. Well, no biggie. That's not quite true in your house. Um, so what you want to do is take the magazine. This is obviously for pistols. So there, there are different procedures for shotguns and rifles um, and revolvers. You want to, on your pistol, remove the magazine, rack the slide, lock it open, physically inspect the chamber, and the magwell, make sure that there's no ammunition on the breech face in the chamber or in the magwell before you start doing anything that involves manipulating the trigger. Be sure that the firearm is safe before you start manipulating it. Um, it. This is not the shooting range. You squeeze a round off in your house. Even if it's pointed in a safe direction, it's still bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's much better if it's pointed in a safe direction than it should be, but squeezing a round off in your house is still bad even if it only strikes a wall. So please be careful. Okay, so uh, I think we've covered the safety stuff pretty well. It's just a case of being conscious about it and being aware of what you're doing. Um, Don't get complacent. Think about what you're doing. Look at what you're doing. Um, And from there, I think we need to start talking a little bit more about what dry fire is. Dry fire is uh, a system of exercises that you can do that will fast track your progress, your fundamental gun handling skills and proficiency. Um, and that basically involves working on all of the skills and um, different kinds of manipulations that you can expect to need to do either in a competition environment or a self-defense environment with just about any sort of gun or um, equipment that you might be using. Um, and if you look at it, there's actually quite a lot of stuff that we need to do and perform uh, when we're shooting live fire and we can work on all of those things and improve them without actually having to squeeze around off. We don't have to have that live fire feedback to actually improve on all of those fundamentals and then just get more proficient with what, we, what we're doing. Okay, so some of the important skills that we can typically dry fire as a, as a bare minimum beginner is firearm fundamental manipulation. Things like drawing your firearm to a sight picture so that you see your sights on a target. Um, things like being able to manipulate the gun to get a magazine out of the gun and get a new magazine into the gun. Uh, things like loading a firearm. So if your gun runs dry, you go to slide lock, you can practice getting a new magazine in and working the slide release or racking the slide, whichever method you prefer. Uh, all of these things can be done in dry fire without needing to deal with recoil, loud noises, uh, needing to travel to shooting ranges to perform these actions, uh, and potentially the, the negative downside of wanting to shoot instead of working on those fundamentals. Um, I think a lot of us go to the shooting range and we end up blasting through the ammo that we have instead of working skill because shooting is fun and working on fundamentals isn't necessarily as much fun which really opens up a, a great opportunity for doing this stuff at home, uh, cheap, easy, uh, and, and highly effective if you do it with some form of regularity and you're sure to do it with some form of consistency. 
And when I say consistency, I don't mean uh, consistent in, in how often you do it, but consistency in the way that you manipulate the firearm so that you build uh, subconscious skill or unconscious skill in managing and, and handling your firearm and manipulating it when required. Guys, I, I know there's, there's lots of myths about dry fire around. A lot of people seem to think that, that dry fire involves sitting watching TV, um, clicking at people you don't like. Um, a lot of people seem to think dry fire just involves trying to get a perfect sight picture and, and dropping the hammer or, or the striker, depending on the type of gun, um, without the trigger, without the sights moving. And, and a lot of people seem to think that that's all dry fire is, so it can't be that valuable. Now, we know you've had massive results with dry fire, um, and, and it's a hell of a lot more than that. So why don't you let everyone in a little bit on on what what your sort of dry fire schedule looks like so uh how often you're dry firing are there do you do different stuff every time are you doing the same thing all the time um, are there some things you do every time and some things you do differently let's let's sort of dispel those myths about how it involves perfect clicks um if they are myths i mean you are the expert apparently uh and, and just tell us a little bit about what what garrett's sort of dry fire regime looks like in that yeah, sure. So that, that's not a problem. There's actually, there's a lot that you can dig, get done in dry fire. Um, and if you bring about a certain level of creativity through doing a proper analysis and actually thinking about what you're doing in your shooting and what you could be doing better, um, you can work on quite, just about everything except for pulling the trigger. And that's going to give you some gains. Um, so for me, one of the things that worked really well for me to actually fast track my progress was at one point I thought that um, speed would come on its own. You know, I was chasing the alphas. If I just did that, the speed would naturally develop without any effort. And that's one of the myths that we see. Uh, you know, if you're not trying to get faster, you're not going to get faster. But the, the drills that I did for quite a while that really helped me get faster and start getting more efficient and really start thinking about my shooting a bit more was the 12 Commandments of Dry Fire, which are written into Steve Anderson's first book, that's Refinement and Repetition. That sort of, that was probably one of the first revolutionary dry fire books that made its way onto the market that dispelled a lot of those myths about dry fire as a case of having a perfect steady sight picture, you know, putting a coin on top of the front sight and when the hammer falls or the striker falls, it doesn't fall off. That really took dry fire to a new level. Um, and it takes you to a new level because it's those 12 draws are heavily founded or testing you in your fundamental abilities if you look at those draws. So what I'd like to hear is maybe some of your guys' thoughts on what those myths are and what you found in your dry fire about them. Well, I mean, the, the, the classic one is obviously the, you know, just, just work on doing it perfectly. Speed will come with time. Um, I remember reading years ago about how you should never dry fire at full speed because what you want to do is you want to dry fire at sort of reduced speed so you can make sure that the, the technique is perfect. And then it'll, and there was always that sort of missing step in the middle between how you magically, at some stage, the magic speed fairy would come and wave her little wand and cover you in glitter like a stripper. And all of a sudden you would uh, be able to do stuff fast. Um, and and one of the things I learned also, funnily enough, from Steve's books and Steve's podcast, um, Bad Shooting Show, is uh, that if you want to go fast, you need to go fast. Um, you know, if, if, if you want to, if you need to get faster, you need to be focused on getting faster. And 
and I'm sure it's something guys will go into more detail, but Steve's quite big on the, on the difference between sort of accuracy mode, speed mode, match mode. Um, and if you're working on speed, uh, one of the big lessons for me is if you're working on speed, then you need to work on speed. You, you can't measure anything else when you're working at, at speed. So I, you know, I, I also grew up and I've been taught with the, the coin on the front side technique. I, uh, if, if I have a, a, a light strike or something, it looks like I have a flinch. Um, I can shoot pretty straight. Um, I don't have a flinch, but I shoot a lot. So I have a degree of timing built into my shooting. Um, and if the gun goes click when I'm expecting a bang, uh, it'll, it'll move. It'll move generally after the shot would have gone off, uh, which is the difference between sort of post-ignition push and pre-ignition push. Uh, but uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you get told, no, no, you have to be able to do this. And it doesn't always have a, a result on target. It's important to be able to pull the trigger without the gun moving if, if that's the goal. Uh, but sometimes we measure that in the wrong way and see someone have a light, uh, a, a, you know, a light strike or an empty chamber or whatever. And, oh, oh they've got a terrible flinch. Well, if the dude or, or, or girl is shooting really straight, they probably don't or they have a really consistent one. Uh, so, so that's one of the that's one of the big things that that I've come across that that you know I, I had to learn over the years that um, if you want to learn how to go faster in dry fire, you need to go faster in dry fire, uh, and and that involves using a timer. Um, and I think uh, Gaz is also going to go into a little bit more detail for everyone as to as to how you use that timer effectively. I think that perfect practice makes perfect. Um saying or or slogan if you want to call it that is just that it's a myth there's nothing more frustrating than trying to get faster and more accurate at the same time it's simply not possible um if you want to get faster then you need to get faster you need to know what it feels like to be faster and for a certain amount of time or repetitions you're going to be at a point where yeah maybe you're shooting some misses maybe you're shooting some deltas but if you know that you're doing that then there's no reason that you can't come back to hitting the target. If you can hit the target, then you can certainly go faster and you can come back to hitting the target without slowing down. So what you're saying is, guys, that you, you, you're, not gonna get, you're not gonna get faster on your own. You're gonna have to find a way to, you're gonna have to make the effort to get faster. And I think something a lot of people miss is that if you're not missing in practice, and that can be complete misses, not dangerous, but complete misses, that can be deltas, that can be whatever. You're not working on going faster. You're staying in your comfort zone. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? If you're holding on to a certain level of accuracy um, and you're not willing to shoot any deltas or mics, uh, you're not willing to go faster, you're not going to get faster. You, uh, you're going to sit in that same comfort zone. Uh, you're not going to get any sort of gains or significant improvements from doing that. You might just become more consistent at what you're doing at that point in time. Which would bring me on to using a timer. Um, I, I've always used the timer in dry fire. I know there's some guys successfully not using dry, uh, timers in dry fire. But it's definitely a vital tool that you need to have in that arsenal for your dry fire stuff. And even when you go to the range, you know, a, a shot timer is one of the most integral parts of your training. Um, I went through a phase of, you know, I'm fast enough now. I don't need to use part times in dry fire. And that's, not, that's simply not true because if you don't know how fast you're doing it and you don't have that feedback from the part-time on the timer, you simply don't know how fast you're going. You might even be slowing down uh, without realizing it. Um, and the way the part-time works in your shot timer is it's not going to give you any feedback on your splits between shots, uh, transitions, movements, etc. 
you will set a part time in your timer. Let's say your, your string of fire is one second, you'll set a start tone. And then at one second, you'll get another uh, beep, which is your stop tone. Uh, and you have to have completed the, the drill that you set out to do within that time. So you have to be completed by the time that stop beep ends. And that's what the part time is going to do for you. Can I hop in here for a moment, Gaz? So yeah, go for it. Critically important on, um, so slightly what T said to begin with, with the perfect practice, you, you have to do it perfectly, speed will come. We know that that isn't true. Um, however, before you start super chasing speed, you need to have the mechanic at least somewhat down. So don't be a new gun owner and think that you're going to start with speed draws and that's going to somehow give you a good consistent draw. I'm not saying spend a significant amount of time learning draws, but at least learn to draw. And then you start using a timer to whittle down the amount of time that it takes you to do this. Um, you have to use a timer because if you can't measure it, you can't say for sure whether you are improving or not. The problem is that our mind tricks us. And sometimes the stage you win in a competition is the one that felt the slowest. And sometimes this is the one you lose is the one that felt the fastest. Uh, the, the mind plays tricks on you. You need to have a consistent measurement. Um, then what Gaz said with the start and stop beep, it's not really a stop beep. It's, a, it's an end of time beep. Critical, do not stop the thing that you're training, practicing when the beep goes if you're not done yet. Um, you need to follow through. You need to complete the manipulation that you're busy with, even if you didn't make the part-time. Um, be sure to, don't just go, oh, there's the second beep. I'm going to stop now. I'm going to start over from the beginning. Critically, remember to finish what you're doing and then do it again, but faster. Um, breaking in the middle of, of practice is generally not, in the middle of a particular step is typically not advisable. That actually brings up two questions I, I, I'd like to ask Gaz because I'd be very interested in, in your feedback and I'm sure a lot of people would be interested. One is, do you ever find yourself, if you're, if you're struggling with something in training, taking the timer out of your dry fire for a bit? So if whatever, it could be reloading, you find that when you're trying to hit whatever part-time that you start smashing the mag into your hand or throwing it in the air or doing whatever except actually doing a reload. Do you ever find that sometimes it's beneficial um, to kind of leave the timer out, do a dry fire session where you just try and do the drill as fast as you can um, or, or however? I mean, I've, I found this with shotguns sometimes it's helped. Do the, and I'm curious for your feedback. So take the timer out for a session, work on making the technique without chasing the part-time so that you can kind of round the little edges off and then go back to the part-time. Uh, and then a second question for you that I think is related to that. If you can't make the drill in the time, so I'll use a silly example. It can be anything. Say you, you someone's trying to make a one-second draw on an A-zone at seven meters. So that's the that's the drill they're doing. So start, you know, they need to have the target, you know, the the, the, the click or the, the sights on target, depending on what they're doing on the A-zone in seven meters. If they're not doing that, if, the, if if it's a case of trying to do that is outside of their current skill level. So if you, you you're finding a technique where you're hitting that ceiling. Do you prefer to increase the time limit to something that they can do and then pop it down? Or do you prefer to make the, the, the drill easier? So if it's a seven meter A zone, keep the same time and move it to a three meter hole target to, to use extreme examples. 
please. Okay, so to answer your um, first question, um, there have been cases that I have taken the timer out of a drill, if that makes sense. So I'll give you some personal experience. During this lockdown, I was having some issues with my reloads in drive by. It was concerning me probably a bit more than what it should have. And I stumbled across JJ Rikaza's challenge on um, Instagram with uh, that 200 reloads, um, that repetition drill of doing 200 reloads. So what I did was I took the time out of doing those reloads. I, I didn't quite get to 200. I rather set a, a time in my phone uh, for 10 minutes and I just did reloads for 10 minutes. And I think taking the timer out gave me a chance to go through the analysis of what I was doing in my reloads. And that gave me a chance to think about, hey, but if I change this slightly, have I changed this a little bit? Maybe I started doing something different now that I haven't got to the live fire for a while. And it gave me a chance to think about it and ultimately taking the timer out and just getting the repetition in on the reloads did some justice in getting the reloads to be more consistent again. So there is value in it, but it's also going to boil down to you analyzing your, your dry fire. Maybe at some point, uh, for example, also maybe you've developed a grip that you've been running for, I don't know, let's call it two years. You decide that you're going to adjust that grip so that hopefully you have better recoil management. The gun comes back onto target better uh, or more naturally. You're going to have to get a new technique. So you have to, in essence, you have to learn how to grip the gun all over again. Uh, if that makes sense, that's going to be based on repetitions and throwing a, a time in on your on your timer at that point in time is probably not going to do your grip any justice in learning that new technique. But as you start to get more consistent, in other words, you have to adjust less each time you draw the gun or present it on target, you can start introducing a part time again on the timer. And then for the sorry, what was your second question, T? So the second question was if you are if you're struggling to make a to, to complete a, a drill in the in a necessary time. So for example, draw to a, an A zone at seven meters in a second, and you're not making that time. Uh, do you prefer to increase the time? So to so go up to two seconds and then work down from there, or do you prefer to go, okay, I'm not going to try and draw on a seven meter A zone, I'm going to try and draw on a three meter hold target at that time. And then make the target more difficult. Which which do you find has worked better for you when you've reached those those sort of ceilings of of, of skill or, or ability? I think that I think that both ideas there have some value depending on the environment that you're working on. Um, so if you're working on a specific role where you have to present the target at seven meters. If you completely unable unable to meet that one second part time let's say it's a one second uh, part-time. If you're completely unable to make that, maybe you're only at your current skill level able to get that done in one and a half seconds. Having that part-time set at one second is really not going to help your progress. You're going to get frustrated uh, and you're going to get upset with the fact that you can't get there. And you, you're actually going to confuse yourself because you're not sure what you have to do to get there. You, you, in that environment, you're going to be expected to make one significant gain to get to that one second part-time. Whereas if you're at this current time able to do it in one and a half, and you prove you can do it at one and a half, you set it to 1.4 on your, on your part-time. And then you start saying, okay, what can I do sooner? How can I get the gun presented sooner? And then you will start 
finding something, oh, okay, if I get my hand to the gun from the start tone sooner, then I can meet the 1.4 part time. And then you'll get comfortable with that. Then you can set it to 1.3. And the next thing might be a case of getting your left hand to the gun sooner once it comes out the hostel or your support hand onto the gun. So I think they've both got value. If you're in an environment, the three meter target's got some value to it as well, because if you're relatively new, having that bigger target's going to help you develop the mechanical fundamentals of actually drawing the gun and getting it indexed to target. So I think both having increased part time and maybe making the targets a bit bigger or going closer to the targets are going to have similar results in similar environments, depending on where you are and where your dry fire currently is. So there is an additional tool here that is, I mean, it's not, it's not new, but it's relatively speaking to how old shooting is. It's new. Um, your phone does video and your phone now does really slick video at probably a high refresh rate that you can slow down. So if you are truly struggling with hitting that seven meter a zone in one second from a draw um and you're significantly off your time so you have a second but you're taking four seconds record yourself analyze that and you may actually see what you're doing that is messing you up and you might want to isolate that skill so if it is something like you can't get your hands from your start position to your gun fast enough, it might be worth just isolating that skill and getting that faster and then returning to the full draw, uh, to, to the full exercise. Or perhaps the way that your hands meet once you have the gun drawn is causing some weird oscillation in your front sights or something. You can't find them to drop the hammer when the sights are aligned. You can see that in video now. And again, if, if that's what's causing you, you problems, you might be better off for a little while at least. Uh, isolating that particular meeting hands and getting the sights to be still. Um, and then going back to the full draw with either an extended part-time or a, or a easier target. Um, don't overlook the, the importance of, or the benefits of using video. Uh, you don't have to put it out for the world. It's not like going to the gym where if you don't post a selfie, you haven't done it. You don't have to upload your drive fire videos. Um, but they can really help you in, in identifying where you're going wrong um, with what you're doing. And that's and going to be different a, from it. And if you've got an experienced friend, maybe you can don't uh, spam them with three and a half hours of you drawing. Uh, but if you've got an experienced friend, it, it, you know, maybe you can ask them if you can send them a video or two of you, uh, of you, of your draw. And if they can help you see any glaring flaws, I, I, I've done that with techniques. I've, I've struggled with something and, kind of taken a video and, and sent it to Gaz or someone and said, this, what am I missing? And, and sometimes you don't see it because it's you. So sometimes it's really beneficial to kind of ask someone, oh, what did I, you know, and, and they, it could be something like your, your weekend's trailing more than you, you're aware of or, or whatever. So I think taking advantage of that, as I say, don't spam them with four hours of you drawing in four seconds, but, uh, you know, ask them for advice. And then, uh, as we've discussed in previous shows, listen. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the most important ones that I've found when sharing videos with people who are more experienced than I am, uh, not just dry fire videos, match videos, is you don't move on the B and beep, you move on the P. And that's something you don't get until you get it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a, a, a critical one. And maybe Gaz or T would like to pick up on explaining what that means. 
But uh, that's a critical one that once it's been pointed out, it makes absolute sense. But until it's been pointed out, you're oblivious to the fact that you're doing that. So what we find is, okay, the difference between reacting to the B on the beep and the P on the beep, you see it quite a lot with shooters is that they almost, they can hear the beep start and then they're confirming that they can hear the beep start and then they'll only start moving their hand or their body in in the direction of getting the gun out the holster in whatever environment it is. And that's, that can cost you anything. That can cost you up to half a second before you even fire your first shot. And what you want to do is you want to learn to react to the beginning of the beep, the, the B part of the beep, the, that very start portion of the beep. If you do that, that's going to save you probably roughly 0.3 to 0.5 seconds before you fired your first shot. You're off to a much sooner start than some of your fellow competitors. What I've found helped with that, and I'm sure T can elaborate on that too, is in my dry fire environment, you start using, I, I, I tend to try and listen more carefully for the, the start tone in my dry fire environment. And I listen to some of the sounds that I actually have in my dry fire environment. So if it's summer, I've got a fan running, which is fairly noisy in my dry fire area. I might be listening to that rumbling. And when that sound gets disturbed by the start tone of the timer, that indicates that I can get going. I can start the draw. Um, that's sort of how I've worked through it. And it's something you have to be aware of. Uh, it's also going to be a part of your reaction time. So as you work on that, as you progress through it, you'll be able to react to the that start tone on the timer sooner as you as you practice it. Do you so find that, whole, that, that listening that listening to those noises also helps sort of calm the chatter in your head? Like you know, especially in a in a match where you've got to shoot a stage now, and you know you're you you know do, do you find that also helps you kind of clear um, sort of whatever thoughts except for your focus phrase that you should have in your head? Have you found that that helps with that as well? In a match environment, I find it a little bit difficult to find a specific sound or a constant sound in an environment that I can listen to. And what often happens to me is I will start listening to whatever someone's saying behind me in, in my squad and that they start talking and that sort of distracts me. So what I learned to do is with my earmuffs, is I've got electronic earmuffs. I switch them off when I'm going to be on the line. And what I listen to is actually the silence in the earmuffs before the start tone and that's sort of a constant constant sound that could even be the blood flowing through my ears or something like that but it's almost like a quiet sound that i hear before i start excellent excellent i think something to also bear in mind with what gaza said is if you think about it that that 0.3 of a second that that beep takes to go from b to p is a third of a one second draw um you know you you are potentially so if you're drawing in 1.3 seconds and you're drawing on the p you're throwing away a one second draw just just by waiting for that. It, it's you know when when you start dealing with that, and I mean I I think I've seen Gaz do a what was it, it was a point four seven um, live fire yeah, draw in a match, um, which which was a thing to behold. And yes, it did hit the target, and it did hit the target in the alpha. Uh, <laughs> so it's possible, um, but you, you've got to understand that that especially at sort of that sort of level, a tenth of a second we don't normally think of as time. Um, at, at, the, at the upper levels of the game, a tenth of a second is a measurement of time, more than just a, a concept, if that makes sense. Yes, another question that I, I think might, might be valuable to people and, and relates to the stuff we've been discussing. 
so we, we've kind of said, you know, if you if you can't do the one second draw and you can do the two second draw, then awesome. You, we need to we need to sort of start working from there. And, and I think it's important for people, especially pe- people um, starting out, to understand that there's once again there's no value judgment in there. You're not going to start any of this game being able to do a four seven draw to an alpha at three meters. Um, very few people will end this game being able to do a four seven draw to an alpha at three meters. But we, we all start somewhere, and, and that gives us somewhere to improve. Would, would, you, would you say it's a good idea then if, if for example, we use that, that sort of arbitrary two-second draw as, as the figure we're working on? Do you think it's a good idea to not allow yourself to get comfortable there? So if, you can, if you're consistently making a two-second draw, should you pretty rapidly try and drop that to a 0.19? And as soon as you start making that consistently, start dropping that to a 1.8, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that if you've got the mechanics of the drawdown, in other words, you can do it consistently and you're doing it consistently at two seconds every time, that's where you're going to stay until you start bumping the part-time down. So if you realize I'm making two-second part-time just about every time with no issues, then you need to bump that down to 1.9 seconds and work on it until you make 1.9. You'll start thinking how you can make that 1.9 and at some point you'll feel something, you'll see something, and then, okay, if I change this, maybe I can do it. And then you change it, you can do 1.9. When you can do 1.9, then you go down to 1.8. And in an ideal environment, if you, let's say your current base part-time is two seconds, you can do that all day, every day. You want to dry fire at 0.1 seconds lower than your current part-time to continue making sure that you're developing that envelope, you, you're getting faster, and that you continue to analyze and think about what you're doing in that environment. So what I found is I made a short little video clip for a friend a couple of weeks ago. Um, he was trying to get into dry fire. He didn't quite know what to do. And I just demoed how to use a timer and how to improve performance while doing dry fire. Draw was very simple. I didn't set the specific draw for him. It's just what I demoed for him. It was a, a, an empty magwell t- t- uh, table start. And I started off at like two seconds or something ridiculous. And I was down to one second in like, I don't know, a minute from then because I just made the time so easily that I just dropped by half a second, half a second. And I think I got down to 0.8 and it was starting to become difficult. But I got so annoyed with the fact that 0.8 is an eternity to do this that I was like, in the video, I said, well, that's it. I think this is the limit of my skill. I stopped the video. I sat down and was like, no, that's not the limit of my skill. There's no way. Uh, I restarted the video and I dropped another 0.3 or something off of that just because I got annoyed with myself. and was like, fuck that. That time is not what I'm happy with. I can make a substantial gain on this. I missed the part-time a couple of times in a row and then we just had rapid improvements. Uh, and I think what actually improved it was I, I figured out how to stage the gun slightly better for my start and it knocked a substantial amount of time off. Uh, and the only way that you're going to get that is by having a time that's difficult to make. If you're stopping at a time that you make easily, uh, you're not going to improve. You might stay at a, at a really good, consistent level of skill, but you're not going to get faster. You have to have some, some challenge in there, some stretch goal. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and that brings you back to analyzing and looking at what you're doing in your shooting. You know, when you got to that 0.8 part-time, you could easily have said, well, that's, that's my skill. I'm, that's not going to get any faster. I'm going to leave it there. But because you sat and thought about it for a while, you're like, okay, but maybe if I stage the gun like this, maybe a little bit better and I lay it this way, 
maybe I can do it a bit faster. And by doing that, you were able to get more gains from what you had already gained. Yep, exactly. And the, the limit wasn't my skill. It was my approach. So I could go a lot faster. It's just I was putting the gun down because it was just a quick throw together video. I was putting the gun down in a stupid way that I know not to do because I've dry fired this sufficiently. But I know not to do it because it's just a throw away, throw together video. We'll just put it down like that. And then you get seriously annoyed when you're like, oh, this is, I've done substantially better than this in actual matches. And like in a match, you're running at like I don't know, 80% of, your, of your, your peak that you should be able to do in, in dry fire. Um, like if you're slower in dry fire, you're doing something wrong. Um, granted, there is match mode, but you want to match what you would do in a natural match environment. But if you're doing speed mode training, you should be beating what you can do in a match by a significant amount. Um, otherwise, you're just not you're not trying hard enough. You need to get back on it and push. And I think related to that, let let's kind of look a little bit more of the meat of potatoes. So we've got Gaz. What what was the the schedule? So. What, did, what was your dry, dry fire schedule to end up being a national champion, to end up being someone who is, is really, really difficult to beat um, on, on any day at any match? What are, you, are you clicking at the TV once a week when, when you don't like what's on? Are you spending 14 hours a day dry firing? What is, what is the average week um, lockdown and, and pre-lockdown of, of, of the Gaylord? Okay, so if we look at my dry fire schedule for the last, mm, call it year or two years, I haven't done much two-a-day dry fire. Um, a couple of years ago, I was doing an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and I was live firing five days a week. Well, not live firing five days a week. I was dry firing twice a day, five days, five days a week, and I would live fire twice a week. Over the last two years, that's changed. So what I'm doing now is I will, on average, I'll do one to one and a half hours every day, five days a week, dry fire in the morning. Um, and th that's, some days that's quite challenging. It's quite a lot of time to give away and it's quite a lot of dedication. Uh, so that's sort of my, my current one. During lockdown, because I was doing so much analysis, ana analysis and thinking of my shooting and where it could go next, I started doing slightly longer sessions because I can get away with it. So I was doing maybe two hours a day some days, but that was just more like a little bit of a boost because I'm not, obviously none of us are getting up to do any live fire practice. So I might as well work on what I can in dry fire. And that's sort of some days I'll do two a day. So if I get 45 minutes in the morning during lockdown and I feel good about it, I'll leave it. I'll think about it during the day. Maybe that evening I'll do another 30 minutes or 45 minutes of dry fire. And that's sort of what I've done during lockdown. I've been a little bit more flexible. Um, uh, but that being said, I've spent a lot more time thinking about my shooting and what I could do with it. If we just get back to Anderson for a moment. So you're doing an hour and a half a day on average, five days a week. Uh, I think Anderson, and this is under correction, you, you might know better, but I think it's, he's recommending three minutes per drill, 12 drills every day. 36 minutes is, is what he is recommending as a start for most people. Obviously, if you can't do that and you can only do 10 minutes a day, that is substantially better than most people and will gain you quite a bit in terms of skill. But uh, you don't need to do an hour and a half every day. Uh, that, that 36 minutes that Anderson is recommending is a, is a really solid start. And then you can crack it up from there. 
Do, do I have that right? He, yeah. he does recommend three minutes of roll, 12 rolls. A hundred percent with, uh, with that, he's sort of recommending anything between two and three minutes per draw for those 12, 12 commandments of dry fire. Um, what he is recommending though, is if you really want to fast track that progress and you want to get big gains is that he's just saying you do two a day dry fire. You do those 12 drills in the morning, uh, call it three minutes apiece, 12 drills. And then in the evening, you do those 12 drills again, but you do them while you're moving. So you don't do those draws static, you start moving. And he says that's giving the guys who have done that and then followed that have had significant gains. But one thing I want to touch on with people is, is a lot of shooters get intimidated by dry fire. Oh, if I want to get much better, I have to dry fire two hours a day and I have to do it twice a day. And realistically, you don't. If you, if you just want to get a bit better and with your current work commitments or family commitments or whatever the lifestyle is that you have, and you can accommodate 10 minutes twice a week to dry fire, that's going to give you some gains as well. It doesn't have to be an hour and a half a day, five days a week or an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. It doesn't have to be as stringent as that. You need to base some sort of schedule that you can meet. And as soon as you start doing that, you will get some gains in your dry fire. You're going to have some improvement. And that's more important than someone saying, oh, I need to spend too much time dry firing. It's way too much effort. I have to sacrifice everything. I'm not doing it at all. Doing it twice a week for 10 minutes is going to be much better than not doing anything at all. This is the same thing we discussed with carry guns, where if you can't carry a 19, well, I shouldn't carry at all. Some is better than none. And some is infinitely better than none. And I think what a lot of people forget is if you're you're dry firing 10 minutes a day twice a week, you are dry firing 20 minutes a day, 20 20 minutes a week more than almost all your competitors. I think a lot of people forget that. So it's it, it's time you're getting that no one else is getting. So Gaz, if you want to, I mean, obviously we're going to recommend that people do buy the book uh, so that they can, and we don't make any money out of you buying the book. We just think it's worthwhile. But do you want to tell us a little bit about what those 12 drills are? What are you, what are you doing in those? So you, you're spending an hour and a half a day uh, dry firing. What sort, of, what sort of drills are you doing in that time? What sort of skills? Are you yourself working at? And and there's probably a slightly different question in there as well is, is what would you suggest for someone who's starting out or not starting out, but starting to get serious? Been shooting for three or four years and decided that it's it's fun going to the range and shooting with your mates, but now you, you, you want to be good. Um, what sort of skills are you practicing? What sort of skills would you suggest they, they look at practicing in that same time? One thing that will help a lot of guys with their dry fire is getting some sort of regimented content that they can use as structure for their dry fire and there's a quite a lot of good materials out there good dry fire books the ones like i said earlier that worked really really well for me they really did a good job for me was uh, steve anderson's 12 commandments of dry fire uh, from his first book refinement repetition and those drills are very very they they are based quite heavily on fundamentals you know they the very first drill in the book is going to be something called sight picture confirmation. And essentially what that is, is drawing the, the gun and getting it indexed to target. And that's one of the first things that shooters need to learn, you know, whether it's from an EDC perspective or competition pistol wise, the first thing they're going to need to learn how to do is draw the gun. You know, all of our stuff or 99% of our stuff starts from the holster. But one of the big things that comes with these drills, uh, and it might not be in the book that you have, 
is instead of running or counting the repetitions that you're doing in your drills, set a timer in your phone for anything between two and five minutes, depending on how much time you have and your skill level. And you will by far get more value out of doing that than counting repetitions because you will become or you'll start doing the dry fire in a more uh, subconscious environment. You're not going to be thinking about counting reps or how you just did that one. You're going to start rolling through the repetitions, which is going to be better for your progress. On, on these, what's interesting is on a lot of these um, index draws or your draws, those kind of things, you're not going to be pulling the trigger to the point where your hammer is going to fall or the striker is going to fall. You're actually going to draw the pistol to a point where it's indexed on target, your safety's off, fingers placed on the trigger, and it's ready to fire. And that's quite interesting with a lot of the presentation draws in, in his books. Uh, the very next one is going to be a 10-yard index. So the first index that you do is roughly 7 meters, that sight picture confirmation draw. The next one's going to be at 10 yards. So you're pushing it out a little bit, so then your challenge becomes a little higher. From there, you're going to go on to like surrender index, so you're going to have wrist above shoulder start index. Um, so you can see already these are fundamentals-based. They're quite heavily fundamental, fundamentals-based, and that's where you're going to see some gains, especially if you're starting out with dry fire or you really want to see some big gains. Stuff like turn and draw, and then sort of from drill number eight, eight to 12, you're going to start doing multiple shot drills. In other words, you're going to start including more stuff into the draw that was isolated earlier on in the book. So you're going to take that index, you're going to put it into a multiple shot draw, like a six reload six, which is essentially draw, um, shoot three targets with a transition. So you're going to have six shots, one, two, three, four, five, six, reload, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now you've incorporated a whole lot of what you learned in those first eight draws into one draw. And that's ultimately going to test what you did in those earlier presentation draws um, and the other things like the turn and draw and your um, burkhead reloads, those kinds of things. So let's just tell people what a burkhead reload is very briefly, just so they know, uh, because until I attended Steve's class, uh, I didn't know what that was. Now, obviously, if you read the books, you will know what that is, but uh, just give people a like, I don't know, five seconds summary of what that is. Um, so Burkett Reload is probably one of the most valuable draws you can do towards getting your, your reloads or magazine changes better. What it is, is a case of index, have the gun aimed at a target, set a part-time in your timer. On the start tone, take your support hand, retrieve the fresh magazine and get to the metal of your gun without inserting it and re-insing the gun onto the target. And ideally, you want to have that, com that series completed by the time you get that stop tone on your timer. Yep. yep. Hope that makes I, sense. I think that something does. that we we should probably interject here as well, just uh, that that there's there's some people need to be a little bit realistic about as well. Gas can dry fire for an hour and a half a day. We need to be very careful about the damage we can do to ourselves with dry fire because, as we discussed, um, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So if if you're doing something wrong all the time, uh, you you can make that skill permanent. So a couple of things to be aware of. For most of us normal humans, an hour and a half of dry fire, you're not going to be able to maintain a proper firing grip. Gaz dry fires a lot. He shoots a lot. He works with his hands. He's got stronger hands than most people. Uh, 
you need to be aware of, of that when you're doing your dry fire that you're not short-circuiting the, the, the thing so that you can have a cool guy dry fire. Uh, you know, you can tell everyone on the internet how, how fast your draw is. Um, so we need to make sure that when you're doing these drills, you're gripping that pistol as if you were firing live ammunition, not just holding it softly because then the mechanics are different and you're going to teach yourself not to grip the pistol properly. And then when the first round goes off, you get a fright because the gun moves. So then you, you tighten up your grip and then all of a sudden, all your other mechanics are off because you haven't got that repetition with that tight grip. So that's something we need to be aware of. One of the reasons that, that Steve, as I understand it, recommends that we do a whole lot of drills where you pull the trigger is because people think that the, the, they've done the time when the gun goes click. So they go, oh, I'm going to draw to a target at seven yards and I'm gonna, I'm, I've got to do this in a second. So they try and make sure that the click happens before the second, and they end up doing that before the gun's pointed at the target or it's pointed at the, at the alpha. So we need to make sure that, that when we approach our dry fire, we approach it like it's live fire. We're, we're serious about it. Um, we're not fucking around. And also that we are working those mechanics like the, like the real thing. I think uh, people sometimes forget that. We need to be gripping that every shot as if the gun was loaded. We need to treat it like someone, I think Gaz mentioned earlier, we need to, to move around and, and, and treat the gun as if it's loaded. Make sure that if you're practicing for, for sports stuff, that you're holstering and drawing the gun and moving the gun within the 180 um, of the little stage that you've built uh, so that we don't build bad habits there because of the amount of repetitions you can get in. And, you know, if you're dry firing for 20 minutes, you can get a huge amount of repetitions in, probably more than a lot of us are going to shoot in a week or a lot of people are going to shoot in a week. So we need to make sure that those are good and valuable repetitions that are going to enable you to be a better shooter and not take away from your skills. So I think it's just something to bear in mind. It's not... It's, if you'll pardon the expression, it's not a dick measuring contest. It's not a case of going, well, Gaz dry fires for an hour and a half every day, so I'm going to dry fire for an hour and a half every day. And you do 10 minutes of great dry fire and you do you know, the, the, the other 80 minutes of just shit. Um, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. So bear that in mind when you listen to what Gaz is saying. When he's doing those drills, when he's working through those, every one of those is done as if this was the real thing. Uh, and I think that's something that we need to bear in mind as well when it comes to, to our dry fire stuff. Does that make sense, Gaz? And is, am I right there? Or am, I, am I talking shit? No, I agree completely, T. It makes sense. I think one of the biggest complaints that guys get or guys offer um, with dry fire is that they find that their grip deteriorates. And I think the, the easiest thing to do with that is to be conscious of what your grip's doing during your live fire. So you may not need to um think of it while you're doing the drill but when you finish the drill revert back to what you felt while you were doing that that string that that drill was i gripping it properly how did it feel analyze those things and work on them and then it's sort of as you progress through it you start to analyze your grip and think about it a little bit more subconsciously to the point where you can think about other things as you progress if that makes sense so we, we alluded to some things earlier where you said that uh, sometimes in getting faster, you, you are going to miss the target sort of air quotes um, in an attempt to get faster, but you need to know that you're missing so that you can come back to the target and, and be accurate while being fast. Uh, and I think that plays nicely into the whole analyzing your grip thing. Uh, so Gaz, could you briefly talk us through what you're looking for when you're dry firing? So when the gun comes up, you're obviously making sure that you have, you're, you're staring at the target zone that you wish to hit. 
you're not just staring at the target, but you're staring at the zone that you wish to hit. You make sure that your sights actually appear in that zone. Um, you know where your sight go up, down, left, right, whatever, when you actually squeeze the trigger. And you're obviously paying attention to things like, am I milking the grip when I come out of the holster? Am I readjusting my grip every time I draw? What are you looking for when you're doing this to make sure that you're, you're getting down what you need to get down uh, in both match mode and speed mode? So, yeah, um, with that, you are in that environment, you're going to, in your, in your string of fire, let's say, you're going to have to, so what, what I was uh, talking about earlier is if you, let's say you're working in speed mode at the moment and you really, really want to get faster, you have to understand that you're going to sacrifice some accuracy for some time until you, you sort of become comfortable with that new speed. Now, you need to keep in mind that even though you're going to be missing and that it's a little bit pointless if you're missing shooting deltas, but you don't know that you're doing that, even if it's, whether it's live fire or dry fire, dry fire is much easier to call your shots because you don't have the gun jumping about around from recoil. Shot calling in just about any of the phases of practice, if you want to call it that, is important. You know, if you're in speed mode, you need to know, okay, the sights weren't exactly aligned on that target. I know about it. I know where it went. You then understand from it and you can learn from it. If you, and I've been through this, if you solidly in speed mode and you think, oh, I'm meeting the part-time, this is cool, that's not a problem, the next minute you go out to live fire, you really can't meet what you were doing in dry fire. You don't understand what you're doing. And that's because you weren't calling your shot. So you were basically in a, in a zone where you weren't learning anything from what you were doing. You weren't getting, you actually weren't really getting faster because you weren't really sure what you were doing, if that makes sense. From the sights, maybe mechanically you got faster, but now that there's some recoil, it's gone away a little bit. So you need to keep that in mind. Yeah. As well. so, so shot calling is, uh, it's, it's a little bit of an abstract concept to many people. Um, people think that what they need in order to call shots is a really clear outline of sights onto a really fuzzy target. Uh, and that's the way that you call shots. That is true. That can be one way that you call shots. Uh, but for people who shoot a lot, that typically isn't the reality. Um, what happens is over time, you learn to, to track your sights uh, almost in your peripheral vision. So what tells you what happened is the last thing you saw before your sight started to lift up off the target from the recoil. Um, seeing what your sights do in dry fire when you drop the hammer on your gun, or you drop the striker is a lot easier than doing that when you have actual recoil and the gun moves substantially. So getting used to doing that is, is much easier in, in dry fire than it is in live fire. But as you progress, you typically won't need a super clear outline of sights in order to do this, uh, depending on target distance. Um, for a lot of guys, they, they, they learn this, this shot calling skill down to a point where on close targets, they still know whether they fired a good round or not, despite the fact that they might not have their sights aligned with their eyes. Um, I think you'll find that most people think shot calling is looking at the target after you fired shots at it and yes. seeing where they are. <laughs> don't do that <laughs> and people can tell when you're doing it because what happens is your your gun will stay aligned with the target 
but your head will bob up and down so that it's behind the sights for the shot and then it's up so you can see the target and then behind the sight. You, you look like a bit of a dick. Um. <laughs> yes, on, on, your, on your dry fire stuff as well, aside from the fundamentals, do you, do you like to do a fair amount of almost stage-based stuff where you'll, you'll have multiple targets um, and multiple sort of, you know, arrays of, of different things? Um, do you just do fundamental stuff or do you, do you kind of, do you do a lot of stage stuff or do you split the two between them? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up for, yep. for, for me, the stage type stuff. So if I'm going to group a whole lot of skills and stuff in, together into one sort of drill or stage, if you want to call it that, then I'm going to be working in match mode. I don't really work on stage stuff typically in my dry fire stuff unless I'm working in match mode. So what I started doing recently is I've sort of realized that I've got a few weaknesses with um, leaning and low ports and transitions through ports. And I realized that after our last national. So what I did is I took a target stand upstairs. I took some um, old IPSC metric targets and I cut the one A zone out the body and I created a port. So I've been working in an isolated environment, um, getting into that port position in a low position, um, leaning out, those kinds of things. And typically, because I want to isolate the lean or the getting into a low port, um, it's going to be more a presentation drill, you know, like similar to the site picture confirmation in refinement and repetition, but not quite the same thing. Typically, the multiple shot stuff and transitions and those kinds of things is where I will set up random arrays of targets, find out what my current part-time is on the current setup that I have, and then work to reduce that. And that's normally to isolate transitions on its own. When you do that, do you try and do it differently every time? Or will you just, will you repeat the same, uh, you know, so if you've got a four target array, do you, will you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or will you go one, four, three, two, and then two, four, one, three, and then three, one, four, two? Uh, how do you prefer to approach that? So what I'll, what I'll often do in, in that sort of environment is I'll still use my phone timer, but I'll reduce the time to like one minute, say. If I'm really working on trying to get my transitions better, I'll have sequence one, two, three, four, and I'll do that for a minute and see where I can get the part-time to. Try and leave the part-time where it is, and then I'll start the timer again for one minute, and I'll go one, three, four, two, for example. So now I've added in two longer transitions and see if I can meet the same part up. And I'll do that through a series or, or series of different target sequences. I think something, sorry to interrupt, and I think maybe just a little footnote we need to put in here for people who don't know what we're talking about. We keep making mention to match mode, speed mode, uh, accuracy mode. I think maybe we should give people a little bit of an explanation. Um, those are, are, are concepts. I mean, they're, they're, they're a fair amount of people use them. I think uh, it was Steve Anderson who, who gave them those names. And I think he's one of the biggest uh, sort of uh, proponents of that system. And it, it's a really good system. And it's it, it, just to give you a brief background, as I understand it, um, accuracy mode is, is the pure mechanics of shooting accurately. It's, it's, it's almost sort of bullseye shooting. Um, speed mode is the mechanics of being able to do things fast. Uh, so it's 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 working the gun, working the body, working the technique to the the most efficient, fastest possible way we can do it. And match mode is exactly that. It's it's from a competition point of shooter point of view. 
it's the ability to be fast enough and accurate enough. So it's 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 how we want to approach that um, in a match so that we can get the sufficient accuracy as fast as we can. And from a defensive point of view, it'd be the same thing, sufficient accuracy as fast as we can. Just just for those who, who don't know what exactly we're talking about, and I, I hope I've explained them correctly. So the key difference yeah. between those is um, all of them involve shot calling. But in accuracy mode, the only thing that matters is that you shoot the highest score, regardless of time. In speed mode, you want to get it in the least amount of time, and the accuracy doesn't matter. Now, there's a, there's a caveat there with it doesn't matter is you still need to know where that thing is going. You still need to call the shot. You need to know whether you hit the target or not, but you're not going to make any efforts to correct it if you miss it. You just go, well, okay, I missed it, but we're working on the speed. And then in accuracy mode, what you want is the least amount of time where you still make the top score. You mean um, match mode? I'm sorry, match mode. So the least amount of time where you still make the top score. And you might make the top score by clicking the trigger a second time if your first one wasn't top score. Um, I think that's the, 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 the way that Anderson explains it. Typically, so, so so accuracy mode, we don't want to be missing. Speed mode, it's fine to miss as long as you knew you missed. And match mode, it's fine to miss. Well, it's not ideal, but if you do miss, you need to fix that miss straight away. Uh, yep. Not by once again looking at the target and seeing you couldn't see a hole, but by calling the shot and and when the gun fired, going that shot wasn't where I wanted, and and filling in another shot. So I'm going to add a, a, another little thing here that if you're looking for a hole in dry fire. <laughs> you're doing something wrong um, if you're finding a hole in dry fire you've significantly fucked up you need to go back and listen like listen to the beginning of this podcast um, it's important yeah so match mode is a case of you applying your current level of skill and correcting any scored errors that you pick up from shot calling and i just want to let everybody know what shot calling is shot calling is Basically, where the bullet's going to be on the target at the point of recoil starting. In other words, the front side starting to lift. Shot calling is not uh, where you last saw the sights on the target. And shot calling is also not shooting alphas. I went through quite a long phase of where I thought shot calling was just shooting alphas. It's not that either. It's a case of reading the sights and in a match mode environment or a match environment. Your job is to correct any scored errors that you pick up. You know, um, uh, alphas and charlies are acceptable. Close charlies are acceptable. Delta needs to be filled in. Mike definitely needs to be filled in. Um, And anything in the no-shoot zone that doesn't cut needs to be filled in as well. You know, so any of those scored errors need to be filled in or or corrected. And the only way you can do that quickly is by, by knowing at the moment that the shot goes off. If you're looking for that hole, you're... All that time you saved in making your drill super slick earlier is gone because you're losing all of that looking yep. at a target. And there's a lot more targets to shoot than there are draws in a match. So looking for each of those holes is substantially slower. So guess how are you breaking down your your sort of balance between match mode and speed mode and accuracy mode? Are you practicing all in a session? Are you focusing on, on one primarily? And does that change on, on where you are in a schedule? So now with no matches in the future, are you just doing everything in speed mode? If you've got a, a nationals coming up, do you adjust that? 
how is how is what what is Gaz's approach to uh, to those different approaches? If you'll forgive the repetition. Yeah, sure, no problem. So let's let's go through a sort of a normal normal environment where we're not on lockdown. Um, the majority of my dry fire is going to be speed mode. If I'm approaching a league, let's say I've got a league this coming weekend. Typically, Friday will just be match mode dry fire before the league. Um, if we're approaching a nationals, for example, uh, probably about a week and a half to two weeks, depending on where the nationals is and how the travel looks, etc. A week and a half to two weeks before that, um, dry fire is typically 80% uh, match mode and live fire is all match mode. Um, I try to avoid trying to get any speed gains two weeks before nationals unless I pick up a, like a significant problem that I want to work on. Maybe I've got lazy somewhere. Um, at the moment, with us being in lockdown, there's no matches coming up anytime soon. There's no live fire practice coming up anytime soon. I've been um, smashing speed mode pretty hard. Uh, that's basically all I've been working on. And that's because I picked up on those new things that I want to improve on. So I've added some creativity into my dry fire space and realized those things that matches are things that either intimidate me or that I could do definitely do better at a, at a match. So those I want to get more efficient at. So I've been working very hard in speed mode. Um, I will, or through this week, I, I sat and thought about it quite a bit. I'm probably going to throw in some more match mode for a little bit into my dry fire just to make sure that I'm being responsible with it, if that makes sense. Uh, keeping that responsibility and understanding is also important. So it goes back to a case of just thinking about what you're doing and being aware of what you're doing. So just to, just to clarify a little bit, when you say that when you're preparing for a league um, on Saturday, You'll, you'll do match mode dry fire on Friday. But when you're preparing for a nationals, you'll do um, match mode dry fire a week or week and a half in advance. Uh, why don't you just explain to people why that is? Uh, you know, we, we understand that there is there's difference in, in match pressure and the duration that you're going to spend shooting, but some of the people listening to this might not be competitive shooters and might not be shooting IPSEC specifically, so they might not understand the references. Um, or just briefly tell people okay, yes. why you treat uh, leagues different to club matches and why you treat leagues different to uh, nationals. At my current skill level, I'm not necessarily putting all my efforts into working towards the next league, if that makes sense. It sounds a little silly, but I'm not really, that's not my main focus at that point in time. Um, I'm aware of what the leagues are, um, because we've shot so many of them, I'm extremely comfortable with shooting leagues, which also brings about some confidence, which is also a big part of it. When it comes to nationals, two weeks before the match, there's not much you can really gain. You're not going to get any significant improvements in your performance leading up to that match. And what's very important for that match is your ability to stay in match mode for the entire match. So essentially, those that week and a half or two weeks before nationals, what I'm doing is solidifying my match mode practice. In other words, I'm making that become more constant, more more of a consistent activity. 
And that just comes down. It's just a case of solidifying what I've practiced and practicing match mode. That's also, it's a skill that needs to be practiced. So the, the, the difference between a club match, a league and a nationals is club matches happen essentially once a month or sometimes more frequently at the fundamental level of the sport. Um, you're shooting somewhere between probably 90 and 150 rounds over the course of roughly half a day. Um, and typically the skills being tested are not stupid difficult in order to execute really consistently. Um, leagues are one level up. Uh, that's that's competition within your province as opposed to competition within just your club. Uh, those typically are like 150 to 200 rounds, somewhere in that region. And they're shot over a one day, uh, mostly. I think there might be places that run them over two days, but you, you're shooting one day. Um, nationals is you're your competing inter-provincial. And this counts towards your, uh, your potential opportunity to go to a higher level match like a world shoot, uh, if it's a selection match for a world shoot. And those are shot over two or three days, um, depending on the match. And you're looking at like 350, 400 rounds, somewhere in that region, which is a substantial feat for most people to be able to get through and maintain a consistent uh, level of performance. Because we all start off, well, we all, most of us start off nervous on day one and tired on day three. And as a result, you might have a really good match on day two, but that's not sufficient to get you anywhere uh, high up in the results because you need to be consistent throughout all three days. And I think that's why Gaz tones himself down from speed mode training into match mode training so that he is more prepared to maintain that consistent level of performance through a, a, a three-day intense match, um, especially shooting in the super squad, uh, lots, of, lots of pressure. Yeah, and I just want to add something uh, quickly. I said that I'll only do the match mode draw fire the day before a league because I'm not necessarily preparing for that, that league. I want to define the line between the two things because I know some guys will be thinking about it. I still treat every match as if it were the same. I treat them equally. I give them the same amount of respect and thought process, those kind of things. But with it being... My, my typical work schedule or practice schedule is geared towards preparation for the nationals and not necessarily that league. But I will still treat every match, whether it's a club match or a nationals or even higher, I'll treat the matches exactly the same. A match is a match. doesn't matter what match. Of critical yeah. importance. If you don't treat them the same, um, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure because the, 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 thing, the one thing is like the other and you not treating it the same is just creating poor impressions in your mind of what the sport is and what you should be doing for each match. Another question for you guys, and I think this is something that, that would interest a, a, a fair amount of our listeners. If you, if you have an issue in a match, so if you, if you shoot a match this weekend in magical La La Land where we can shoot again, um, how many mistakes on a particular technique would it be before you started changing your dry fire schedule for that so if on stage three of the match you fumble a reload do you then on monday go oh shit i need to work reloads hard 
Or do you look at it and go, okay, well, I fumbled four reloads. This is a weakness. Where, where do you draw that line between going from your normal sort of schedule to working on a particular skill um, as a result of something that happened in the match? Is, is there a difference? How do, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's a good question because that's going to directly relate everything back into dry fire. So let's say, for instance, we shot a league this last weekend, stage three. I fumbled the reload. And if I've got video evidence, I can try and look at why that happened. Um, it's not something that I'll typically let scare me initially and say, oh, I have to work reloads really hard. I'm going to do an hour of reloads on Monday morning. That I don't think is going to do any justice to to your performance or your confidence on your reloads but it is something that i will begin to monitor uh and watch you know so i might typically i'm throwing reloads into my dry fire if i notice in my dry fire that i'm starting to fumble more reloads then yes i need to go and and revisit that particular issue um if in my reloads during dry fire i'm not picking up any new issues then unfortunately at that league that that fumbled reload was just an anomaly. It was one of those mistakes that happens. Uh, that it it's not something that was directly within your control. It, it happened, um, and it's not a it's not a direct comparison to your skill level. It's it's one of those things. So 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 one mistake is a mistake. If you if you've done it consistently through the match, then there's a, or, or mul- multiple times, then then it's something to start looking at, at adjusting your practice regime to to fix that failure or, or that 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 weakness if i'm understanding yeah 100 so just yeah not not maybe for you guys even though you might be the one that answers this um but for guys who are uh, not quite as experienced as you are in the sport uh, or or in shooting in general will you point out an issue to them if you see something that they're doing not as efficiently or not as well as they could consistently so not if they fumble one reload but if you see someone fumbling three or four reloads in a match who is less experienced will you say that um i've noticed that you might need to work your reloads a little bit more uh because we've noticed this that's something you would do or uh, would would you wait for them to ask for advice on what they're potentially doing yeah typically i would try and talk to the the person or the competitor involved in making those mistakes consistently Typically, though, it will be someone that's shooting in my squad uh, yeah. that I would speak to. If it's someone that I really don't know uh, at the range, I don't know the person personally, it may be unlikely that I would go to him and tell him that. Yep. Just, also, just from my personality perspective, if he came and asked me, I'd be more than willing to help him. But from my personality perspective, it's not typically something that I would go out of my way to do. Uh, if it's someone I really don't know. Yeah, no, but but you're you also tend to know or get to know a lot of range really quick. Yeah, you're unlikely to notice consistent mistake from someone who isn't in your squad anyway, um, because they're not in your squad. That's a good point. Uh, unless they're like really slow in the good squad ahead of you and you're, you're watching them at every stage, but then. <laughs> I know my inner That's teacher struggles, struggles to keep my mouth shut. Um, if I see someone struggling with something, I'll generally say something. And then depending on their reaction, will depend on, you know, you get occasionally, and it doesn't happen often, occasionally you get people who kind of just like bristle at you saying anything, and then you do you boo as long as you don't point your gun at me. Um, and I've had people go, oh, what do you think here? Or, um, you know, or, or, or 
you know, I'll say, do you mind if I point something out? Um, and and I find mo- mo- most people are generally quite quite sort of open to that sort of thing. Uh, there's there's always a few people who bristle, and a lot of people, are, especially new shooters, are often quite grateful if someone's actually paying enough attention to to help them out. So I think that's a good lesson for new shooters as well. Ask if you're yep. not sure. Ask, watch the people in your squad who are shooting well and maybe say, what should I do? If it's an EPSIC match where there's stage planning, maybe ask them what they think, especially at a club shoot. You know, that's the, the, the one thing where I think you'll find people are a little bit different at club shoots is someone shooting a nationals, they're, they're focusing on hard on their mental game. They're focusing hard on how they need to approach that stage. At a club shoot, generally, if you ask someone, don't ask them when they're on the line or, 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 or two to go, but ask them what they think about the stage when you're doing the walkthrough. I mean, and Guys, I, I've turned around to Corneille and he's my mate and told him to shut the fuck up because I'm trying to work out a stage because I'm struggling with something. And that's and you need to accept that that might happen. If 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 you're not their mate, they probably won't swear at you. But you know, if, if someone's struggling, you know, if they, they're struggling with something or they can't talk at the moment, most people will say, Don't worry, or, or can we chat just now? Um, but don't be scared, especially at club shoots, to ask questions from from your, your, your squad mates about that sort of thing, or ask them about what they think you should work on. Yep, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I was just wondering because uh, I, I've had lots of assistance over the, the last couple of years shooting competitions of, of guys coming to me, uh, guys in my squad, so UNT and some other guys, uh, but, but specifically pointing out things that I was doing that were not great, uh, but that I wasn't paying enough attention to to realize. Uh, guys staying on the, on the sideline watching you shoot go, this is the third thing that he's fucked up in the last three stages. Uh, and it's always the same thing. Uh, that's not quite as easy to to pick up on in the beginning when you're focusing on, I just need to get through the stage as opposed to actually... With the, you, it could be just that you really suck. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> My reloads are getting better because like skinny gun. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to fix your reloads, don't dry fire. That's bullshit. Don't listen to this podcast. Shoot skinny gun. Yeah. If you have to do a reload every like seven rounds, like you're sorted. You'll learn. <laughs> Gaz, can I divert us a little bit to uh, sort of dry fire aids? Um, and that's not what you get from touching your gun inappropriately. Uh, it's it's uh, what targets do you use? Um, what sort of stuff do you stick into your gun or onto your gun to make dry fire possible? I know that there is a thing that T will briefly tell us about for blocks specifically. What What sort of targets do you use? How do you set up your guns? How do you set up your your belt? Do you wear your ear pro? Do you wear your eye pro? Do you use different magazines for dry fire? Do you stage your magazines differently for dry fire? Like, do you use something to weight them down? Um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's start with the with the targets. Um, I for a very long uh, long time ran some plywood uh, or MDF targets that were cut out by laser. Sorry. They, they work really well. Um, but over the last year or, well, call it it's six to eight months or so, I started running to issues where no shoots were a little bit more intimidating. I'd look at them a little bit closer and they subsequently became something that I needed to work on. So I started working on researching stuff. And at the moment, I'm dry firing using acrylic-based or plastic targets cut out on a laser where I've actually been able to have different colors so i've got no shoot targets and normal targets that i can create partials with no shoots and work through what i need to with the no shoot setup 
Sorry, but sorry to interrupt. Are those scale, yes, targets, scale are targets? Are you, are you yeah. using like one quarter, one third? Um, uh, the bigger ones are a little bit bigger than one third. I prefer dry firing on a slightly bigger target. Um, but my dry fire workspace doesn't allow me to use full size targets. I've got a maximum of about four meters from the wall that is safe for me to use for dry fire. So they are scaled. The smallest one is just smaller than one third. Once again, I don't like to have targets that are too small in my dry fire. Uh, they become a little bit too pass-fail, uh, where the scoring zones become obscured. But on my on my person during dry fire, I will typically have my normal stuff. I'll, I'll almost be dressed like I'm going to the range. I'll have clothes, shoes on. Um, I'll put my rig on with all my normal gear. Um, I don't typically run dry fire with EMFs on. At best of times, I find them uncomfortable. I'm not going to wear them while I'm doing dry fire. That being said, if you are, so for instance, in your surrender position, if you're referencing your hands off your earmuffs, it is advised that you sort of wear your earmuffs in dry fire to keep that reference consistent. One thing I have started doing is I will wear my safety glasses or my, my normal shooting glasses during dry fire. Uh, that's helped a little bit. Um, but I try not to do that all the time. So I'll mix it up both with the glasses, without the glasses. And then my typical setup is obviously my Glock. And then I've got two magazines that are dedicated to dry fire only. They won't get used in any live fire environment at all. Um, they are loaded to division capacity with dummy rounds, which is inert ammunition, no primer, no powder. But I get the weight of the ammo I typically would in the gun at a match. But I will top off those mags with two snap caps each so that I can easily differentiate that those are dry fire mags. So that's basically my setup. Um, obviously with me doing Glock stuff, uh, there's a few different methods that you need for, or that you could use for, uh, multiple shot rules. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So that's very helpful. Just to swing back to the, uh, with glasses, without glasses, you said that it helps. Is that because the contrast that you get on your front sight is different, um, with your competition glasses versus without? Is that why you find it helpful to sometimes? Wear the glasses in, in dry fire, or is there some other reason? The the Hunter's HD definitely bring about a different contrast to the sight picture. They do a much better job of using the light in my environment to help me in the dry fire. You know, your lighting inside when you're doing dry fire is never really going to be ideal. Um, and the Hunter's has helped quite a bit with that, and that's why I started doing that and made a bit of a difference. But I work with both so that I keep the the challenge of doing both if that makes sense i think uh, gaz brought us onto a topic that i think is quite important and that's how you get those multiple shots or, or multiple trigger pulls uh we've got a couple of different types of pistols that we're using either for, for the game or for defense and uh, those require a couple of different techniques so i think let's just discuss those briefly on a single action pistol so a 1911 style pistol i found the easiest way is I uh, started cocked and locked like you would if you were carrying it or, or shooting a stage. Um, on the drills, I'll, I'll, I'll click the safety off, pull the trigger to, to, to drop the hammer for the first shot, and then move the trigger through its full range of motion for subsequent shots. I find with 1911s, there's enough trigger motion there that it's not going to be exactly the same as the, the break you get when you're shooting, but it gives you, it gives you the, the mechanics close enough that, that you don't really notice, notice the difference. Double action, single action pistols like guys are shooting in, in production. So the Shadows, the, the Tanfos, the, the Beretta 92s, whatever 
you're shooting double action, single action. Um, what I prefer to do is, is pull through the trigger double action on that first shot. Uh, and then I don't want to let it go all the way forward. I see a lot of guys who try and dry fire those double action for every shot. That's not how you shoot it. The double action, single action guns, I like to pull through that, that double action trigger, get the click on the first shot, and then on subsequent shots, I release the trigger about where I would release it. You know, I'm not trying to catch the reset or anything silly, but I'm releasing the trigger about halfway through on all these subsequent shots so that uh, it's got a similar motion to what I get on, a, on, on the gun when I'm live firing and that hammer's come back. Uh, on striker-fired guns, they can be a little bit more challenging and, and sometimes they, they, there's a, a few sort of outside tools we can use. What will generally happen on a, stri on a, on a striker-fired gun is that after the first click, you're going to have a dead trigger. Um, and I know what Vogel does is he then just pulls through that dead trigger. I found for me that hasn't worked ideally. So the old trick was to, uh, to stick a, a cable tie or a piece of paper or something just to take the slide slightly out of battery um, so that you had a, a trigger that moved. Um, once again, you're not going to get that exact trigger feel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's not exactly the same trigger pull. It, what's important is that you are pulling the trigger the same, not what the trigger does, but what you as an operator do. Um, and I mean that as the person operating the gun, not an operator operating operationally in an operational environment. For the Glocks, I've been using Gaz's little Glock cube for a little while now. I, I got some pre-production um, ones. And what that does is it goes behind the barrel in the hood of the slide and takes the gun out of battery a little bit. I like it for a couple of reasons. The big one being with a cable tie, it's not going to work with all the holsters. So with a cable tie, with paper, with a patch folded up, whatever kind of thing guys are doing, you're not necessarily going to be able to, you know, if you put it upwards, it might interfere with your sight picture. If you push it off to the side, it can interfere with holsters. Um, it can get in the way. The gun's not just the same. I find with that little the cube there, it's consistent. I'm not folding a patch and having to try and fold it one more time or one less time to keep it in the same place. I pop it in there and you know, for most of us, dry fire is not the most exciting thing in the world ever. It's not something we greatly look forward to. So if we can reduce or, or minimize the mission in getting set up to dry fire, uh, that, that's really nice. So if I'm dry firing a Glock competition gun or a carry gun, I can slot that in there. And, and especially with my carry gun, I can run my drills from my carry holster. I can do the stuff ordinarily and have a trigger that runs. So that's kind of my approach to the different triggers. Um, you know, and, and you can do the same if you're shooting a, a rifle, you can generally safety off and, and click it for the first shot and then have some trigger movement for subsequent shots. Or with your shotgun, the same thing, click it for the first shot. And then you can have a little, you've got a little bit of movement in there for subsequent shots. So that's what I found worked. Makes sense. Just on the, the sort of making dry fire easier in yourself, uh, I found that uh, having everything that I need to dry fire in the area where I dry fire is of great importance for me because otherwise I don't do it. Um, when my gun safes were not in the same area where I train, uh, I typically would not train with some of my competition guns because getting them out the safe was just too much of a ball ache. So I spent a lot of time just dry firing my EDC gear because I had it on me already. Not, I'm not saying you need to move your safe into the same area where you train, but the other stuff, have your dry fire targets, if not up, at least in the area where you need them. Have your competition rig, and if you're going 
to use your eyes and your ears, have your eyes and your ears in that area already. Uh, it, it removes the, uh, the mental sort of barrier that goes, I want to dry fire for 15 minutes, but it's going to take me eight minutes to get set up. So I'm not going to do it. Um, so to try and do that, if at all possible, I understand sometimes it's not, but if you can reduce the, uh, the number of steps that's required to get you into the stuff. I think Gaz mentioned as well that I think is, is important to bear in mind is you don't need an entire 25 by 25 meter space to dry fire. Um, you can you can make a plan with almost any space as long as you can get you know three or four meters away from a surface. Um, you can make a plan. Don't let that be an excuse and go well. You know I live in a small townhouse or whatever, or you know my house is pretty small. I don't have a huge amount of space. Um, you don't need an entire, it would be very nice to have an entire basement downstairs, but that's really not going to happen here or an entire room. Um, but if you can find a bit of space, uh, you you can do something. And, and and I think a big lesson with all of this dry fire stuff is that something is often better than nothing. So with the, uh, the, the, you can make it work sort of side of things. Uh, I still use the, the hardboard or, or, I don't know, MDF cutout targets that Gaz was referring to earlier. And my solution to, uh, to having um, no shoots was just to spray them white uh, on the back. Um, sort of low cost, low sort of ingenuity solution. However, there are lots of target templates available online. Uh, so if you shoot a different sport, it's the one that these targets are available for, uh, or you for some reason can't find them, can't afford them, or I don't know, shipping's going to take a long time to get to you, you can print out scale targets from the internet and stick them onto a wall with sticky tape. Um, failing that, paper plates. Have a round paper plate uh, and draw with a pen some target zones on them just so that you have something to score on. It's not ideal if you're shooting sport. Ideally, for sport, you want a representative target uh, that you're training on, but it is a massive step up from doing nothing. Uh, I think something else that, that I've heard a number of people say, and this is live fire, not dry fire, but they'll go to the range and they'll shoot at coke cans. Um, that's not training. You, you need to shoot at something where you can actually measure your performance. You need something with scoring zones. Um, the same thing is true of dry fire. You want to get better, you want to get faster, you need to have a set target. Um, light switches are varying. Don't, don't dry fire at light switches, uh, but Light switches of different sizes and shapes and things are definitely not the ideal target for you to be focusing on when you're trying to get better. You're better off just printing out a target or drawing one on paper so that you have something that is an actual target versus something that is a makeshift. Uh, well, I think that maybe I hit it with my shot calling, but you can't be sure because it's not a target. Don't, don't let not having the fancy targets stop you from doing stuff. Because you, you want to make sure that you're practicing aiming at the correct part of the target. You know, if you're on a steel target, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if you're shooting a steel plate and if that's what you want to replicate, that's fine because an edge hit and a, and a center hit are worth the same sort of points in, as long as it goes down in, in, in sports where it needs to go down or it gets hit in steel challenge. Uh, on paper targets, you know, we, we need to be able aiming at the correct part of your paper target. If it's an IPSC target, we want to be aiming at the A zone, not aiming at the big brown thing. If it's an IDPA target, we want to be aiming at the zero down, not at the big brown thing. If we're doing defensive dry fire, we want to be aiming at something important, not at the silhouette. Uh, so that's a really important point that that you have a target where the and and 
don't be silly and try and hide the scoring zones in your dry fire because, oh, you may not always get them in real life. Um, make your life easier by getting those repetitions of knowing exactly where to aim to, to have the biggest part of the A zone um, or to have the best part of the zero point down zone so that you can get that benefit, if that makes sense. So I just want to mention briefly a drill that is, is helpful for this but comes from a, a different instructor. And I don't think that she's behind this drill. I think she's just using it. Uh, Kita taught us a, a drill called the quiet eye, which is effectively doing exactly this. Um, there's, there's no firearm involved. It's just you walking around staring at targets. But the point is that when you see the target, you stare at the correct zone that you wish to shoot in immediately without your eyes jumping back and forth and around all over the target. Uh, and she sets them up, the targets up in various orientations and things to make it harder for you to figure out, just based on experience, make it harder for you to figure out where the correct zone is. You need to stare at it and figure out where the correct zone is. That stops guys wanting to shoot two center hits on the target and they end up shooting two low deltas because that's where their eyes went when they saw the target instead of being sure that they look at the correct thing. Um, so that's a, another dry fire drill that if you go and look it up, the quiet eye, well worth spending some time on that uh, in addition to the, the firearm manipulation stuff. And I think that that probably, I think, kind of moves us along to, to another topic that, that's related to a lot of the stuff we discussed. And that's, that's dry firing with your carry gear as opposed to competition gear. Most of the concepts we've spoken about so far translate 100%. There's no, there's no difference in the concept of how you're going to dry fire with your carry gear as opposed to how you're going to dry fire with your, uh, with your competition gear. The gear might be different. It'll most likely be a different holster and, and a, very often a different gun. And, and I prefer to use a different target. You know, I, I live fire and dry fire. Uh, I, I want to shoot at the sort of targets that, that that sort of shooting involves. That doesn't mean that we dry fire at people, but it means that we dry fire at people same type targets. If we're talking about defense, and we drive fire at IPSC targets or IDPA targets if we're talking about competition. Um, so that's that's something I think we we also need to look at, and and that's something that get that gets ignored a lot. People, most people don't drive fire realistically, uh, even competition shooters, and most people who are drive firing are competition shooters. Uh, and a lot of competition shooters will never drive fire their defensive gear, which is unfortunate because there's a huge amount of of benefit to be gained from that as well. So. Let's think about that as well. I think I think that's something people sometimes miss. Um, your, your your concealed carry draw is probably more complicated than your dry, than your competition draw. You know, even if you most guys shooting IDPA are shooting it under a vest. Very few people are wearing those those contraceptive vests in public. Um, as an as an IPSC shooter, you're generally shooting out of some sort of rig. From your defensive gear, you're probably drawing it out of some sort of concealment. And for a lot of guys and girls who are, who are carrying in different environments where, where deep concealment becomes an issue, they may even be carrying in such a way that it's going to be really difficult to get good repetitions in live fire at the range. You know, if you if you if your circumstances are such that your carry gun is carried under a tucked in shirt or in a pocket holster or off body or on an ankle holster or something less conventional, the, the less conventional it is, the, the the harder it is and the less likely you are to get those repetitions in live fire. Uh, 
and that's a great great thing to work dry fire as well. So you know, clearing that 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 cover garment, especially if it's tucked in, getting that ankle holster out, getting the gun out the bag, whatever whatever technique you're using to carry yourself a fence gun, and we do the exact same thing. All the stuff we've discussed now, we have those part times. We even apply those concepts of match mode and and speed mode and 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 accuracy mode because we do we want to be as fast as we, as, as we can. Um, but we need to be sufficiently accurate. So let's not don't don't just think that this entire discussion is about how to get better at competition. Um, you know, it, it's it's also how to get better at self defence with with realistic. You know, draw, the draw is a massive part of self defence. No, no matter what anyone tells you, um, you're generally not going to start with a gun in your hand. You need you're going to need to get it into action. There's also stuff or techniques that we need to to, to practice, and often techniques we need to learn that can be really challenging to do safely live fire. So if you want to work on shooting from injured positions or uh, malfunction clearance, one-handed malfunction clearance, you know, one-handed reload, stuff like that, a lot of that can be really dangerous to do live fire because there's that possibility that the gun's going to, you know, especially when you're learning, you could end up sweeping yourself. Now, that's never ideal. But I'd much rather make those mistakes in the dry fire environment, preferably first with blue guns and, you know, some sort of inert gun-shaped object, and then with the gun dry and with snap caps and and that sort of thing. Um, But I think that's something we need to bear in mind, that that what are your, you know, don't think about, oh, how do I draw from the car? If you can, dry fire, you'll draw from the car. You know, if you've got a closed garage, it's better. but you know, dry fire your draw from seated because we need to be aware of that. How do I access my gun when I'm seated in my car? How do I access my gun when I'm seated at my desk? How do I access my gun when I'm lying on the couch watching television or playing Xbox? Uh, these are all all things that just like the competition and, and all the principles that we discussed with the competition stuff uh, slot in almost a hundred percent with the defensive stuff. Once again, making sure, making doubly sure that. We've cleared that gun, um, that we don't do that famous last minute, oh, I've finished, I've put the gun away, and I'm going to get one last draw in. Um, when I drive fire, I, I, I sometimes look a little bit like, well, I am quite OCD, but I look a little bit more OCD. I'll, I'll check my chamber multiple times when I'm dry firing. So even if I've the gun's gone click 15 times, sometimes I'll just check the chamber again because it's free. Um, and I can't see any downside to it. I can only see benefit. I can't see any downside. And we want that as much as possible in any of our training. So dry fire that that carry gear as well. You know, don't don't just dry fire the cool guy competition stuff and then throw a Glock 42 or an LCP in your pocket and and maybe once a year you go shoot five rounds through it. Uh, drill with that gun as well and 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 have part times and have stuff that you're working towards with that gun as well. And when you're dry firing your, your EDC gear, um, apply the same tools that you have for competition dry fire. Use a camera and use a timer. Timers, as we said, are important because that's the way that you know that you're actually improving and getting faster. Uh, but using cameras in dry fire for EDC is especially important because some of us do really dumb things when trying to clear garments, uh, when trying to do reloads and, and that kind of stuff from our EDC gear that can either be worked out through technique. So by looking at yourself and going, well, this is stupid. This is costing me half a second or costing me a whole second or whatever. Doing this thing 
Um, and I can do this a lot faster if I just do this instead. Uh, or it might point out a deficiency in your actual gear uh, where, well, I, I'm carrying this, this reload mag over here, but realistically, I'm never going to be able to access that. Or the type of clothing that I'm wearing is restricting me to the point where I'll never be able to get a fast, consistent draw, regardless of what I do, um, simply because the shirt's too tight or whatever. Um, there, there, there are some deficiencies that can certainly be picked up through video. Uh, by dry firing it that are a lot easier to identify than it is when you're live firing it. Um, and, and, and try and do as much of that as with clothes that resemble your, your real world clothes as possible. You know, what, what we find often is you know, sort of the classic uh, untucked shirt drawer is very different when you, when you go to the range in the ratty old polo shirt that you don't mind ruining to what it is in that, that button up shirt that you, you're more likely to wear when you're going out or, or that extra medium t-shirt. Uh, and you may find that the, the 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 mechanics don't necessarily transfer. So what you want to do is you want to find mechanics that work am, amongst everything you wear, uh, but you also want to make sure that those mechanics do actually work with the clothes you really wear, and not what you laugh on the shooting range with. I think that's that's a really important topic on that as well. Yep. Uh, then what I really like doing for dry fire for WDC uh, gear, uh, apart from basic things like presentation draws. Um, I really like dry firing the the fast drill, uh, which is you start with your empty gun, imagining that it has two rounds in the chamber. Um, you then draw to a human target, and I'm not going to give you distance and things, go look it up. You draw to a human target, you fire two rounds to the head. You then LARP a, uh, a, a chamber empty reload. So you drop the mag that you have, you insert the new mag, and you either push down on the slide release, even though the slide won't go forward because it's already forward. You either physically push down the slide release or you need to rack the gun so you'll need to have snap caps um, to make sure that you don't have a slide lock. And then you'll fire four rapid rounds to a larger torso target. Um, the proper performance standard for that is five seconds for the fastest guy in the world shooting at well, sub five seconds, shooting it with live ammo. If you can get five seconds in dry fire uh, consistently while actually scoring hits on the thing that you're aiming at, you're doing really well from a, from a EDC standpoint with your gear. Um, you won't make the five seconds in real life. You can do it in, in dry fire. Cause like we said, you're going to only get like 80% or whatever of your, your top speeds that you're getting in dry fire in, in real life fire. But if you can make that in, in dry fire, you're in really good shape compared to most people who carry guns who just don't work those mechanics. And that gives you a, a complete draw because it's giving you a draw where you need to con uh, defeat concealment. It's giving you two rounds, rapid rounds, to a really high accuracy standard to small targets. It's giving you a reload with a semi-realistic um, empty chamber reload uh, and then fast rounds to a much bigger target. Uh, it's, a, it's a really nice, concise draw that covers everything once you have the individual components down. That's the one I like to do. I like the Gabe White food court standards. Uh. Yeah, that, like the Gabe White standards are excellent. We we covered those in the in the EDC episode. Like those are fantastic. So, I think we've we've covered quite a bit of stuff on dry fire. I think this is going to be a longish episode, and uh, we hope it's worthwhile for all of you. You know, if, I think unless any of us have got any more to add, we probably need to look at uh, at, at uh, tying this up before it goes too long. Um, 
But if you've got questions, if you've got, uh, if, if there's anything you didn't think we covered or anything like that, don't be scared to hit us up, you know, send us a, you know, you can, you can send us a message to the Facebook page um, and we'll do our best to, to, to get back to you. So if there, if there is stuff you want to discuss, if there is stuff that you, you didn't, uh, you know, didn't think made sense or anything like that, um, or, or if you'd like us to go into more depth on something on a later show, please let us know. Um, send us a message. Uh, and a quick shout out to uh, Andre K, who sent us a message on the Facebook. Thanks so much for the feedback. We really appreciate your guys' feedback, positive and negative. Uh, mainly positive, really. So uh, don't be scared to, uh, if there's stuff you want us to discuss, if there's stuff that uh, you'd like us to cover, uh, shoot us a message and, and we'll add it to the list for future shows. So taking up from uh, what Tarek said, Please, if you find something useful in these episodes, share them with your friends. Um, sharing them really helps us build a bit of an audience, but obviously it also hopefully informs your friends and, and provides them with some valuable content if you found it valuable. Um, I'm getting the signal to say, uh, rate us five stars. Obviously, if you don't do five stars, well, no. be nice. At least five stars. Yeah, no. don't start nothing. Yeah, just, just be nice. Um, and there's to mention that we're, we have a, a really exciting interview coming up with, uh, with someone in the industry, gun, gun trade next Monday. Look out for that. That's already been recorded. Fantastic content. Uh, hope to see you there. Yeah. Uh, thanks everybody for listening and the support. Um, like Tarek and Cornet said, if you have any queries or questions, or you just want to give us a subscribe and a rating, please do so. We'll help you out. Um, and then just remember that drive fire is free. But thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll chat soon. Stay safe.